On this week's Adam Schefter podcast, as the sports world continues to be on hold, as the coronavirus sweeps across the country and affects certain areas, New York and California, in ways worse than others, we will be joined by the medical director for the NFL Players Association, Dr. Tom Mayer, who has tremendous insight on where the situation is at today and where it might be going and whether there will be a football season in 2020. And we'll be joined by the host of the GM Shuffle podcast, Michael Lombardi, who sheds some insight on what it's like for front offices in this day and age to get ready for a draft without pro days, without visits, without much of the information they ordinarily would have. And then we'll be joined by the Arizona Cardinals defensive end Chandler Jones, who last week donated 150,000 meals to food banks in Arizona and his hometown of Endicott, New York. But before we get to those guests, sports may be on hold for the time being. The NFL draft is still right around the corner. ESPN experts Mel Kuyper Jr. and Tom McShay talk all things NFL draft on their podcast, First Draft. Make sure you're staying up to date by downloading and subscribing to First Draft, as well as the Adam Schefter podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we jump into today's interviews, a quick word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? So BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient. You can now get help at your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and my listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code Schefter. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com backslash Schefter. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Betterhelp.com backslash Schefter. And now the medical director for the NFL Players Association, Dr. Tom Mayer. Uh, Joining us now, Dr. Tom Mayer, the medical director of the NFL Players Association, figured what better time than to have on somebody whose job is to lead the players forward in a time of great uncertainty and great risk in our country. Dr. Mayer, thank you very much for the time today. How are you doing? I'm well, Adam. Thanks very much. The pleasure is mine. It's uh, a crazy time, but uh, this is my training, and this is uh, what, you know, as Shakespeare said, we are but warriors for the working day, and so I'm a happy warrior I got 2,500 player patients uh, and their families and our staff to take care of. So uh, it's a joy to have that job. Dr. Mayor, what do you make of what is going on in our world today? It is so frightening. I'm watching 60 Minutes on Sunday night, and they've got a piece on these hospitals that I've been treated at. My wife gave birth at one of them. And now there are areas in which our healthcare workers, our doctors, our nurses are under siege on the front lines of a war against an invisible enemy. I I cannot believe what I'm seeing in my own backyard. And it's sweeping the country, getting more and more dangerous by the moment. 
What do you make of what's going on in our country right now? Well, I just got off the phone with my friend, uh, Dr. Andy Jagoda at Mount Sinai in New York, and he gave me a, a situation report. Uh, and, you know, it is it is tough. It is uh, frightening, but they're they're getting through. Uh, they've so far got enough ventilators and, and PPE um, to to get through. But, you know, I think the key thing and it hasn't been accentuated quite enough, I don't think, is that you hear the term uh, novel coronavirus and you hear the term less often emerging infectious disease or EID. And what that means is that it's evolving. It's never been seen before, hence the novel, and it's emerging. And, you know, I've, as you know, I have some background in, in disaster medicine and emergency medicine. And, and there is a playbook for pandemic disasters like this. But if you've seen one of these, you've seen one of these. Uh, so the details as we uh, get there and emerge, we know it's a serious dynamic and you can't say it's not disruptive uh, disease. But there are some parameters, and, and uh, we stood up a um, – we, the NFLPA, under uh, DeMora Smith, my boss, and J.C. Treader, our, my other boss, uh, direction, we stood up a, a COVID-19 brain trust, which includes folks from Harvard, from Duke, from Johns Hopkins, the CDC, um, from the White House, from the State Department, uh, National Academy of Medicine, uh, Tony Fauci and his office are involved. So um, – Pardon the language, but these are serious badasses. These people know this uh, well. I've had the pleasure of working with them in the past, and um, it gives us a chance to get our arms around it so that we're doing everything we can to both protect our player patients and to make sure that the, the league has, as you know, an obligation to provide a safe workplace for us. So uh, we got the right team. We got the right folks uh, in the clubhouse to help us uh, make the decisions and stay informed. So the NFLPA has set up a COVID-19 brain trust here to inform its members about steps it should and shouldn't be taking moving forward. Is that accurate? What is the job of that COVID-19 brain trust? Well, it's really to advise uh, our uh, COVID-19 group, which includes uh, D, uh, J.C. Treader, uh, Sean Sansevieri, who's our uh, attorney and with whom I work uh, mm-hmm. extraordinarily closely in, in everything we do with regard to health and safety. But also Don Davis, our player directors, our attorneys, um, everyone that needs to be at, uh, uh, at the table, Terry Smith and Ira Fishman, our chief operating officers. So the, the intent is to uh, interface with the league. Uh, we've had two calls with, with the league uh, to talk about what needs to be done, one uh, several weeks ago. And as you know, that, that resulted in, in closing down the club facilities and shutting down travel um, and, and all the steps that were taken at that time. We had a call uh, with them again last week um, and uh, agreed to update and look down the line. I think what we do know is we're not going to know if, if you want to say, OK, this has never happened before. Well, that's true. But it did happen several places in the, in the world prior to happening here. So mm-hmm. if you look at places that did um, as good a job as they could, uh, you'd say, well, that's China. That's South Korea. That's uh, Singapore uh, at a minimum, uh, and and then say, well, what was it like for them? The answer was using safe practices, harboring place, uh, effective hand washing, physical, I prefer to call it physical distancing instead of social distancing, mm-hmm. uh, all those steps. It was a four-month run, and, uh, you know, shops are starting to open up. Businesses are starting to open up in South Korea and in, in uh 
China, and we are just past two months into it. So it's going to be a good six to eight weeks until we get a better sense of precisely how bad it's going to be uh, in terms of, uh, you know, when we talk about all clear. And, and as you might guess, all clear means different things to different people. All clear for the society means one thing. We have to look at the hot spot, possible exception of Green Bay. If you look at the map, and you've seen these maps, um, it hits in, to varying degrees every NFL city, uh, as I said, with the possible exception of Green Bay. So um, it's got to be looked at both uh, globally, nationally, but in our case, it's got to be looked at for, at the hot spot level. And then what does that mean for clubs in terms of their ability to reopen safely so that our players can return to the facilities and uh, and hopefully move on. What we do and what we have been doing for the last month is going to determine uh, if we have an NFL season and if so, what that season is going to look like. So it's kind of an, um, in, in the old sense of the word, awesome responsibility. You say if we have an NFL season and what it will look like, can you try to answer those two questions as best as you can today on Monday, March 30th? Are we going to have an NFL season, in your opinion? And if we do, what would it look like, Dr. Mayor? Well, the, Adam, the, um, the easy answer and the hard answer are the same answer, which is it's too soon to tell. And, and that's not meant to deflect the question in any way. Uh, as you know from our past experience, I don't reflect questions at all. Um, the answer is that what we do now will determine whether or not there's a season in terms of, of you know, two fundamental things. One is the players themselves, uh, club employees, coaches, and everybody else, but also the, the cities in which they, they play, in which they reside, in which they uh, play their games. Um, and, and those two things are going to have to be looked at very carefully. So we've encouraged the league to start to put into place uh, a guideline, a roadmap, for lack of a better term, to say, you know, at what point could the club facilities safely open? Because my job is to protect the health and safety of our NFL players and, and their uh, and their families, including their extended family. Uh, so there's that piece. And then you start to think about, OK, what would a game look like? Uh, is it sort of like the NBA was thinking about? And, and that is you could ha- you could have games, but not people in the stadium. Uh, how could you safely get people into the stadium? Does that involve shaking temperatures, other screening procedures? Um, so uh, the point is that I, I think we're going to know a lot more uh, in May, June, late May, early June. That would be in all likelihood based on our brain trust and and, and people like Tony Fauci and, and Deborah Burks and others uh, would probably be uh, uh, about the time that uh, the hotspots began to open up again for, for their own business and then follow from there. So OTAs probably not going to happen. Uh, as you know, the clubs are, are, uh, have, are closed for now and, and will remain closed for a while. Uh, but I'm, I'm very optimistic. You know, you look at somebody like Drew Brees and Brittany Brees gave $5 million to New Orleans. And you, you may have heard uh, Drew the other day say, hang in there, hang tough. And, and that's what we have to do. We have to hang in there and hang tough. But we have to uh, scenario plan uh, for disasters uh, in terms of the, the way we did it uh, at 9-11. I know how important a date that is uh, for your family. Uh, as you know, I was the command physician at the Pentagon on that day. And as and once that's done, you start to scenario plan and say, okay, what do we do next time? How could we imp- improve what we've done? 
so all that stuff uh, is uh, on our side is going through, and, and obviously we've encouraged the league to do their side and uh, to provide the safe environment, and including how do we play games and what that might look like. So I, I'm optimistic by nature, and uh, we're smart people uh, in America, and uh, I, I think we can get this stuff. The one thing that concerns me, though, is you brought up those other examples, Singapore, uh, South Korea, places that have attacked this as well as you possibly could attack an invisible enemy. But it seems like, and you can correct if I'm wrong, you know this better than I do, Dr. Mayor, but we have more cases here. We reacted later than we should have here. So it seems like it's going to be more widespread here than it has been in any other country. Am I incorrect in that thinking? It's a, uh, you know, this is one of those, because it's an emerging uh, infectious disease and a novel virus, there's more questions than there are answers. Uh, that's, it's a very intelligent question, and I would expect that from somebody who uh, graduated from Michigan and Northwestern. But, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, I think what it does is points out the, the magnitude, the serious, as I said at the beginning, it's a serious, dynamic, and disruptive disease and, and helps focus on, you know, how do we deal with larger numbers uh, and, and in, you know, the good news is that in many respects, we have more resources because of the nature of our country and, and organizations like FEMA, uh, but also because we've got the benefit of careful study of what happened in those other countries. You know, a little known fact, when you look at, at Italy, the average age of the people who died in Italy is 85 years old. Well, that's not that's, you know, a different population. If you look at the rate of coronavirus in Milan, in Lombardy, the, it, and take that and then compare it to Rome. Rome is 40 times less in terms of disease. If you look at Sicily, it's 400 times less in terms of both disease and and death. So um, all the more reason to be vigilant and to make sure that we're following. You mentioned OTA is highly unlikely. I've had coaches ask me, I've had front office people ask me, is there going to be an off-season program? And my reaction to them has been, we'll be fortunate if training camp starts on time. Do you think training camp will go on as we know it in the past? Do you think there'll be modifications to that? What would be your projection for what training camp will look like? Because, again, I, I can't imagine that. You said highly unlikely. I can't imagine we're going to have any off-season program here. Well, when you do, and you see a lot of modeling, there's some there's some really good modeling out there. And uh, the problem with my, I'm not a modeler by training, uh, meaning I don't sit with, uh, you know, Sigma this and all those kinds of things that, that uh, modelers use. The problem is if you, there's only as good as the assumption. So if the assumptions uh, are even slightly incorrect, then the model has to be accounted for. That's number one. Number two, as you know, they're exponential. They're, it's not an arithmetic uh, two plus two project or, or progression. It's a, uh, a geometric or exponential. And so if you're off a little bit, all of a sudden you're off a lot in terms of what occurs. All by way of saying that just based on a four-month run and the idea that in all likelihood uh, May, June would be the earliest that anything could get open, uh, then you're probably looking at training camp as being a likely starting point. Now, if it happens earlier, great. Uh, what will those training camps look like? You know, uh, are we're encouraging uh, scenario planning to say, you know, no non-essential people at training camp. Um including crowds, for example, including uh, if there's non-essential people from the club standpoint, uh, then the fewer people uh, uh, available that might be carriers of the virus. And as you know, part, part of the problem is that 
some of the young people who uh, who uh, test positive for the virus don't have symptoms, and yet they're shedding virus. And there's some data to suggest that they're shedding even more virus than some of the elderly people who uh, who develop the disease down in their lungs. So I think you're correct that training camp is probably the earliest. Does that mean that we've just given up? on anything but training camp? No, but that's all about, that's what disaster medicine is, is scenario planning. Now, Dr. Murray, is this worse than you thought it would be? Is this what you thought it would be? Where is this in terms of that scale? Well, when you look at, um, as an emergency physician, as a sports medicine physician, uh, you know, emergency medicine prepares you well because you have to always have a best case, you have to have a base case, and then you have to have a worst case. You know, what's the worst thing this could be? I'm going to assume that that's what it is, because if I can treat that, then we got it covered. But you also have to say, well, what's the what's the best case? What's the mildest thing it could be? And then the base case. And, and my sense is that that we're uh, pretty much in base case. Uh, it's it's uh, it could could have been a lot worse. Uh, I'm not going to get into a political discussion in any way, but uh, I, I think we're now doing the right things in terms of getting the right resources. And uh, and people to, uh, in most cases are being socially responsible and following the guidelines. Uh, if we continue to do that based on what we've seen in other countries, uh, I think we'll be OK. Now, you brought up being one of the command physicians at the Pentagon Rescue Operation, uh, coordinating medical assets at the site that day. Just curious to know what you remember about that September 11th day from unique perspective you had. Well, it. Like like everything, you prepare for it, but but there's no way to prepare for that. Uh, and again, I know how special that day is in in, in your family's life. Uh, it was a beautiful, crystal clear day, and uh, all of I was in our emergency department. I was chairman of the department at the time. We've got a red phone that is uh, that the only time it rings is when the president's on our side of the river, and uh, because I live in the, the national capital area. And not only that, but but it only rings when there's a problem with the president when he's on our side of the river. And uh, I was in, in there watching CNN, watching uh, what had happened, uh, although it wasn't clear at that time what was happening at the World Trade Center and the phone rang and everybody looked around and I guess I was the boss so I had to pick it up and it was Dulles Tower, uh, Washington Dulles Airport Tower saying we have an aircraft unaccounted for, uh, please be ready to stand up. So we actually stood up our disaster uh, plan before uh, American Flight 77 impacted the Pentagon. And you know, it, like everyone else, you, you remember that day, uh, I mean in my case, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the uh, the uh, you know the part of the brain called the rhinencephalon, which actually just means smell brain. You know, doctors are always going to come up with a technical term when a simple one would have been better. But you know, every once in a while, you I, I catch a, a, a the smell of smoke, and it just takes me back to the Pentagon uh, instantly. But uh, you know, it, it was it was uh, just like everywhere else. It's uh, we're surrounded by heroes that didn't know they were going to be heroes that day. And so that's that's the things I remember the most. You bring up the heroes from that day. And to get back to that 60 Minutes piece that I saw on Sunday night, I just could not believe what heroes these doctors and nurses and hospital workers are. I, I mean, I, I just was blown away to watch this. And you know what's happening, but to just see it there in real time uh, unfold in front of you like that, uh, what they're doing, how they're putting their lives on the line, the work that uh, people in your profession do. I, I can't even tell you how much respect and appreciation I and my family have for 
the work that these people are doing every day. And, and these are people that live in our neighborhoods, people I've probably crossed paths with. And again, I, I, I want to just thank them so much and look forward to the time I can thank them because the work they're doing is nothing short of remarkable in my mind, Dr. Mayor. Remarkable. Well, Adam, that's that's extraordinarily but typically generous. And, you know, I, I work clinically at Anova Fairfax Medical Center, and uh, their leadership has been great about that. But I will I will share that with them. But, you know, you think about just from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, America, I mean, uh, human beings are trained pretty well, loud noise, smoke, fire, you run away because of the self-preservation. These people run into the fire. Uh, and and I, there, there's too many analogies, I think, to, to warfare, but our son was a, a Marine infantry officer with two mm. highly kinetic tours. Kevin, uh, it's not the same, but the fact is, you know, like Marines, like soldiers and sailors and airmen, uh, emergency folks, uh, docs and nurses are trained to run towards the, the sound of chaos, the sound of of, of noise and confusion and screaming and yelling. And uh, it's just, it's an honor to be with them and, and, uh, and one of them that I certainly will extend that to oh, the American please. College of Emergency Physicians and the ANOVA folks. That, that's really thoughtful. And Dr. Mayor, I really appreciate you taking the time today during this incredibly busy time. I appreciate everything that you're doing. I, I hope uh, you will continue to do all this great work to serve the players, to serve the National Football League, to make sure that we get back up and running as soon as we can, because I think people miss the sport and the diversion that it provides everybody, the entertainment it provides, and we all could use some of that at this point in time, and hopefully it's back sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I would say, Adam, that to, to your listeners, of which there are, are, are a ton, um, you know, follow the guidelines. Uh, read them every day. Think about them every day. Do it for your family. Do it for uh, yourself. Uh, do it for your country. But if you're an NFL fan, do it for the NFL. The chances of us having a season – rest as much on our communities as it does with the National Football League and the National Football League Players Association. Uh, so it's uh, – and, and, and I why do you say that? Why yeah. do you say that, Dr. Mayor? Why do you say that? Well, I say it because, you know, the, the question uh, – the way in which people behave now will, as I said, determine whether we have a season and what the season looks like because – we can control what we can control with our players and with the club, but the community controls whether hotspots like New York and New Jersey, you know, the stadiums in New Jersey, as you well know, uh, whether those communities open up because what individuals do in those communities, particularly hotspot communities, will help drive when governors and mayors and you know, senators, congressmen, even presidents can say, okay, all clear. It's safe uh, for us to resume uh, normal operations. And one of those normal operations is uh, playing games in the National Football League. That makes sense? Well, it makes total sense. And I hope people listen to that message, listen to your message, and they heed those words of advice and that everybody does everything they can. I know, again, I mean, you know, my family, we've been home for, I'd say, three weeks now. Uh, haven't really left at all other than to an occasional run to the grocery store. Um, and you just hope that everybody obeys those rules, understands it. It, 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 it makes me so upset when I see these pictures of people on the beach in Florida. Like, what, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I, I yeah, haven't seen. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I won't get I, I even see, you know, I, I know people have to get to work, but I see a lot of people on New York subways together. I'm like, well, why, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Yeah. The other, the other piece of advice is to, to your point earlier, if you see somebody in scrubs, just smile and say thank you. 
you know, because they've just come or just going to take care of folks. And, uh, and you know, that's an honor and a privilege. We get more from our patients than we ever give our patients. But just a simple smile and, and thank you. Uh, I can't tell you how, how much it means when, when people do that. Well, thank you, Dr. Mayor. I really appreciate the time today and the insight. Tremendous. I knew you'd be great. You were great. And we really appreciate all the information you provided today. My pleasure entirely. There's a lot there from Dr. Tom Mayer the medical director for the NFL Players Association. They're in good hands with Dr. Mayer. And now, the host of the GM Shuffle podcast, former NFL executive, Michael Lombardi. Uh, Joining us now, a man who writes for The Athletic, who hosts his own podcast, the GM Shuffle with Adnan Burke, and who co-hosts a Saturday morning sports betting program on Sirius XM Radio for Vegas Stats Information Network. Joining us now, my friend, a man who wears many hats, Michael Lombardi. Michael? How are you holding up with everything going on in the world today? You know, I, I mean, it's, as you know, uh, okay for me because I'm used to working from home. I mean, I write every day and I watch football every day and I can do it all from my home office. So I don't really need to go on the road as much. I mean, I miss uh, some of these spring clinics that I was due to speak to. But for the most part, I mean, I'm a lucky one that I can still work my craft from my home office. And, I, and I'm fortunate and I don't have to worry about changing my routine because my routine has been the same. How do you think what's going on impacts all these front offices across the country getting ready for the draft here in a few weeks? Well, I think it's actually going to be helpful. I think, first of all, the number one thing that's the cancer to most drafts is bias. And bias is created through uh, talking to too many people, to being on the road, to clustering with scouts, being at Michigan's Pro Day, being at (laughs) – Ohio State's Pro Day, Alabama, and then trying to form opinions based on consent. You know, without that, you just have to stand alone. And I think removing some of the bias from this draft is going to be a healthy thing. And I think it's also going to help help us revolutionize scouting to the degree because we haven't revolutionized scouting. We haven't changed. In 1984, when Bill Walsh told me to go get tape on Jerry on Jerry Rice, you know, I had to find the tape and I had to search for it. And today, if I wanted to watch Mississippi Valley State play football, I could just turn on my laptop and I probably have every single game that they played this year. <laughs> and yet the game has, how we scout hasn't really changed from that 84 time when Walsh asked me that question till today. We still go to college campuses. We still do exactly what we've always done because that's what we've always done. And I think this change is going to force us to be more reflective and become more adaptable to what, what really is the essence of the job. The job is, a, the job is now a, an information collector of character. When you go to a campus, Adam, today, you really, the job you have is not to evaluate the guy's short shuttle not to evaluate his ability to, to make plays on third down. You must evaluate his character and his love of football. All the other stuff you can do at the home office. So are you telling me that even though I've never studied X's and O's, Michael, that I could go be a scout and do okay at that in terms of collecting information about that particular player's character? Oh, I, I, you would probably be the premium of it. I mean, let's face it. What, what, Adam, your job is you're an information man. You're no different than a scout. You get information, and then your job is to figure out what, based on sources, what is reliable information to put out there. 
That's essentially what a scout's job is. A scout's job is to evaluate the information he's getting. For example, Bill Walsh used to say all the time, don't talk to teams at losing programs. They blame their players for losing. So if you talk to a coach off of a 1-10 team, none of his players are any good because why would they be 1-10 if they were, right? So yeah. you, you, your job is to evaluate your information. You probably had five different things. You had that Julio Jones was getting traded to the Philadelphia Eagles one day, and you said, as I said, that's a joke. That's a bad story. You're I taking see. information – sorting it, making sure that it's reliable before you tell people what it is, right? Well, you know, and it's, it's the same, same thing yeah. a scout has to do. It's funny, and I've told this story on this podcast, and I'll tell it again now because I never thought of it like that. I came home from the combine one year, Michael, in the 90s, and I remember calling Mike Shanahan, and I said, I, I got a guy you got to take in the draft. And I never studied any tape on the guy, but I spent some time with him. I read up on him, and I said, this is the kind of guy that I would – want on my football team if I were drafted. I said, Mike, you, you got to go take this guy. First round. When he's there, there's this safety from the University of Miami named Ed Reed. you got to go take yeah. him. And, and, he, and, and he said to me, you can always find a safety. Well, the point is, is and scouts don't want to hear this, but their job is to get information, yeah. reliable data. It's not hmm. to predict what round a player goes in. That's Mel Kuyper's job. That's Todd McShay's job, right? That's the job. That's Daniel Jeremiah's job. That, and they get gratification. I said that guy was going to be a first rounder. I said he was going to be a second rounder. Right? They get gratification from that. That's their job. The job of a scout is to essentially tell the team exactly what that player is going to do for the team, not where he's going to get drafted. Because the language of the way he describes the player tells you as an executive what the value is, and the value equates to where the draft is. So, for example, you may love Leonard Williams, right? You may love Leonard Williams, and you just gave him a franchise tag at $816 million, right? When he doesn't rush the passer and he doesn't pressure the quarterback, you just overpaid by a lot of money because he's not a dominant run stopper. So you've overpaid. It's no different than overdrafting. When you pick Ashley Laylee in the first round, you've overdrafted him, even though it may make Mel and Todd happy that he went in the first because that's where they said he was going to go. So the job of the scout is to describe the player, not the round. And do you say, do you think that you mentioned this clusters? So when people go to the Michigan Pro Day or the Alabama Pro Day or whatever it may be, you think they're kind of gravitating towards each other, sharing ideas, and it kind of gives everybody the same thought process about a particular player as opposed to going at it alone? It's a Petri dish for confirmation bias, right? If I go to Michigan and I like, you know, player Y, uh, and I go up and I'm talking to my buddy from another team, do you like player Y? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I kind of like him too, right? Don't you like him? Now it's confirming my bias. And that's what's going on. It's confirmation bias. Then there's jealousy bias, right? So this next book that I'm writing about is really about bias and decision-making. And, and ultimately, the book is about why people can recognize the non-obvious and others can't. And one of the major hindrances in recognizing the non-obvious, the things that essentially lead you to winning, are bias. And so there's all forms of bias. There's 28 forms of bias. And so one form of bias is, well, if the Patriots like that player, we have to like the player. That's a bias. The Patriots like the guy, so why don't we like him? Or if 
I like this guy and a team from another team likes this guy, we've got to buy. So there's all forms of bias. And when you get to these pro days, you'll see clusters of people together hanging out. Yep. Forming their own biases. Michael, it's the same thing in journalism. Same thing. You see these pack of people around a certain player. I always say go the other way. Go where the crowd right. isn't. It's no different than, than, than see, what, what people misconstrue about the, the information business is that you're in the same business as, as a scout, as, a, as an executive. Your job is to collect data, sort data, make decisions on the data. That's essentially what the general manager and the head coach does. Mm-hmm. Sort data, collect data, and then break the data down. And if you don't understand that's your job, you're never going to get there. If you think your job is predicting rounds, and let me say this, this theory that I'm discussing with you is started with Bill Walsh, and I would say it's probably not universal in the NFL. If you ask any scout about a player, or where they'll start saying, I think he's the third or fourth rounder. And Walsh used to say all the time, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means. So in 91, when Belichick came to Cleveland and we put together a grading system, we started with the premise, no, we're not talking about rounds. So today's the teams that use the Patriots grading system, where the Browns won, won't talk rounds. But it's a hard thing to do. I would say it's almost impossible to get scouts to change their mindset because they're so used to predicting rounds. I tell the story all the time. We had a scout when I was in Cleveland before Bill came, and he wouldn't give an opinion for anything. He wouldn't talk about anything. And the day the draft was over, he got his notebook out, and he started grading down. He said, I said that guy was going to go in the third. And I was right. He's, I knew he was going in the second. I knew he was going in the fourth. How does that make you any better? Like, what does that do for you? That doesn't do anything for you. Predicting the round is Mel and Todd's job. That's what they get paid to do. They're, that's what that's what the fans want to know, right? But for the executive, they want to know how the guy's going to play and how he's going to impact the team. So the scouts are staying home. The GMs are staying home. There are no pro days. There are no 30 visits. How does that now play out without any of this confirmation bias being available to these people who have been on the road traveling as they have in the past? Well, it really comes back. Now we're scouting in the 80s, right? So we're scouting like it was the 80s. We could just watch the tape, sit in a room, watch the tape, evaluate the player, write the report based on what we're seeing, not based on what we're hearing. And then we just go to the next guy, write a report, watch it. And we're going to have a lot of missing data. We're not going to have short shuttles on a lot of defensive backs. We're not going to have 40 times on some of the major players. You're going to have to evaluate that based on the tape. So good teams will say, okay, here's the list of receivers. Here's the receivers that ran fast at the combine, and here are the receivers that we gave seven in terms of speed off the tape. Now let's make sure that these two lists can come together. Because sometimes guys run real fast, but you can't see it on the tape. Some guys run slow in the combine, but they play faster. And you've got to differentiate that. And so it's really going to be a collection of data based on tape, based on studying tape, not talking to people. And there's not going to be the amount of injury information. And I worry about that. Not worry about that. I think about that for teams. You may draft a guy and he shows up and he's got a bad knee or a faulty shoulder. And in other years, I know players have come out and said, yeah, I've got a knee injury or a shoulder injury. And the player or agent has tried to spin it a certain way. So it's presented right. to teams in a certain way. This year, I think, actually, for the first time ever, you're better off not saying anything about an injury, right? 
And if you show up, there may yeah, be a lot of guys showing up to training camp whenever it begins with some sort of injury that the team had no idea about when it drafted them. Right. And so because of the HIPAA laws, we don't have as much medical. It used to be when I first got scouted, you'd spend time with a trainer. The trainer would give you everything you ever wanted to know. He would tell you when the guy had hemorrhoids, right? He would tell you when the guy came in with a – I mean, he would tell you everything. But then the HIPAA laws in this country prohibit him from telling you him, him telling you anything. So the players that went to the combine, they're gonna, you're going to have to live off those grades. And you're gonna, your doctors are going to have to make an assessment. It's the players that didn't go to the combine that you really haven't gotten your hands on. And, and, and I'm reminded of 1986. We had one of the greatest drafts of all time in San Francisco. And in the fifth round, we picked a kid named Patrick Miller from the University of Florida who tested positive for marijuana at the combine. And Coach Walsh really didn't want to pick him, and he got pissed off, and he threw his chair back, and he walked over to the defensive backboard, and he pointed to this kid, and he said to me, Michael, who's this kid? And I, I said, Coach, that's Don Griffin from uh, Middle Tennessee State. He was the Ohio Valley player, conference player of the year. He said, if he's there in the sixth round, we're going to pick that kid. We only had two reports on that kid. We, the last time we saw Don Griffin was September 29th, 1985. My heart's pounding at a rapid pace. I go out of the room, and I call the number that we had on him. Thankfully, it worked. And I said, Don, are you healthy? He said, yeah, Coach, I'm fine. I had to take his word for it. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of that. But you, but you can tell. You can tell. I mean, that it's so funny. Like, there's so many judgment calls I get. You know, somebody's calling. You know when something's real and when it's not. And it's like that for you guys now in the football world. So what would happen if you're in a front office and there was a kid from Alabama who didn't work out at the combine and you called down to their football office to speak to trainer or Nick Saban or whoever, could they, would they give you as much medical information about that guy as they could or they can't do that because of the HIPAA laws? They're very, they have to be very careful with the HIPAA laws. The player has to sign a release that his information is allowed to go out. And, look, here's the thing you have to understand, right? Al Davis was brilliant at this. He was truly brilliant at this. Al Davis could figure out why people were giving him information to benefit themselves. Uh-huh. In the 80s, we were getting information from colleges at, at will. They were, they were, it was, we could go get as much as we want. Today, colleges are protecting themselves to make sure that they're not that, that they're not hurting any player. Because the last thing they want to do is be, you know, I was going to be a second-round pick, and you bad-mouthed me, and now I'm a fifth-round. We picked Rob Burnett in the fifth round in Cleveland, one of the best defensive tackles we ever picked. He got killed by the coaching staff at Syracuse, and he went all the way down to the fifth round because of it. That, that stopped happening because of recruiting because of recruiting. So all you get is Will Rogers. Every kid's great on their team. Every kid's wonderful. Every kid's the best kid. Hardest worker. Never worked hard. So you as a scout, you as an executive, you, if you're going to Alabama to find out about Alabama players, you're probably not going to get the right information. And, and that's why, for me, it was so heartbreaking when Carly McCord died because Carly was the one person – that we hired in Cleveland, and her job was to find out information on players through back channels, and she was magnificent at it, magnificent at it. And she never got, she just stayed on her phone because players trusted her to tell her information because they didn't think she was calling for the real information. And she was dynamic. She told me, she said, Michael, you know, Jimmy, when we asked her about Jimmy Garoppolo, she said, look, he's probably got 80 girlfriends on campus at Eastern Illinois. 
but he's a really good kid. And that for those kind who, of information is what's going to be missing now. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Colin McCord uh, was the sports reporter who was killed in a plane crash on December 28th at the age of 30 going to the bowl game with LSU, right, Michael? Am I accurate yeah. in that? Yeah, she and, was and, her, and she, her husband, Steve. Steve, her, 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 her father-in-law coaches at LSU, and she was like a, a daughter to me and Millie, my wife. I mean, she was a sweetheart. And, you know, I got fired and left the Browns, and, and they, then they stopped using her. And, and two of the players that she knew a lot about, they drafted huh. anyway, and she both knew they, that Manziel had his issues, and Justin Gilbert was really not what he needed to be. And she went on to become a sports reporter. And she was good at it. I mean, she had great charm. She had great personality. But what I learned was, and I should, and I have, and I have this in my notebooks, and I, I'm going to save it for, for, for another time. But when, when Gil, the great Gil Brandt used to run the Playboy All American Weekend, it was Mother's mm-hmm. Day weekend in March, and it was always at the Biltmore out in Arizona. And Gil said to me when I was in Cleveland, he said, "You should send somebody out here and just observe these kids, because I've got six, fifty of them, forty of them, I don't know how many he had, and they're all going to be out here for the weekend." So we send Jim Schwartz out there, and Jim Schwartz goes out there, and he wasn't married at the time. And Schwartz, he, I, I said, Jimmy, don't bring any Cleveland Brown shit with you. Don't do any <laughs> of that. Just put, put, you know, pretend like you're working at the Biltmore janitorial staff, right? Yeah. And he went out there and he observed every single player. He came back. He wrote a report. I still have his report, and he described Ray Lewis as the most dynamic leader he'd ever seen in his life. He said he could organize anything. And and then he wrote every single other player up, and he was dead on accurate because he could observe them in an unbiased setting. Right. Well, that's valuable. That's valuable to be able to do that and the access. And to that's that. what we're going to miss in this draft is that. Well, it'll get teams to go back to studying tape and basically the essentials of the game. Right. I mean that that's what this is going to be now. Right. And you're going to have to rely on you know we had a rule in Cleveland and New England. Past performance predicts future achievement. Yep. So you, you, you must always ask yourself why, uh, what this player did in his past. Demonstrate some way of resiliency. Talk to, talk to me about how he's overcome things and what he's gone through in his life and try to get a grasp on that. And you're going to have to make a lot of phone calls to people on the periphery of his life to really nail down what he is truly like. Michael, you brought up New England. I don't mean to transition like this, but I want to get to another topic here. You worked with the Patriots from 2014 to 16. You worked with Bill Belichick in Cleveland, uh, 93 to 96. You know Bill better than anybody. How will that team transition without Tom Brady? How will it adapt? Well, I think it will adapt in the sense that they'll, they'll remodify the offense to where it'll fit Jarrett Stidham. I think people don't realize how good of a player Jarrett Stidham was in high school. You know, this is a kid who was a five-star kid coming out, highly, highly recruited. Art Riles got him to go to Baylor. He's from Waco. Uh, and then when the when the Baylor situation exploded, uh, Jarrett decided to transfer to Auburn. Had he stayed with Matt Rule at Baylor, he might have been a top 20 pick in the NFL draft. So the Patriots got a real got a value in the third round. He's a very talented kid, big arm. And what I think this will allow the Patriots to do is develop him and develop a new offense around what they think their players can do. Tom was an incredibly, incredibly talented player. And he did it for over such a long period of time that the volume of offense became 
very, very challenging for even some veterans to learn. And that's just human nature. That's what happens. It happened to Dan Marino in Miami. It happened, it happened in New England. They're going to go back to being basic. They're going to do what the players can do well and execute them. And as always, it's going to be about the team and the culture, not about one person. Now, they're going to have a long way to go to get this fixed, and I think they're probably ready to do it. But you are convinced that Jared Stidham will be the starting quarterback for them? I'm not convinced. I, I, if I were there, I would be pushing them to sign Jameis Winston hard because I think Winston, with Josh McDaniels coaching him, uh, I'm not saying he's going to cut 30 interceptions down to three. No, he's still going to make mistakes. But I think Jameis Winston has enough talent, much like Vinny Testaverde had enough talent when we signed him in 1994, that it was worth a shot. And we got him at a reduced deal. And I think that anytime you can do this, this is an Al Davis thing. Al Davis used to make me count every team's how many first, second, and third round picks you had on the team. Now, you didn't have to draft them. They just had to have pedigree in the first, second, or third round. And he always wanted to have over 31 players on his team that had that pedigree because he believed there was a reason a kid got drafted in the first round. There was a reason a kid was the first overall pick, right? It was just obvious. So – you know, then take that guy at a reduced value and work with him. So if they don't sign Winston, do I see him being interested in Cam Newton? Yeah, I think the biggest issue why Cam Newton's on that on NFL team right now is because you can't give him a true physical. You can't give him a physical to really get your hands on him and have your doctors say he can do this, this, and this. They can't, they can't quantify it. But I do think that they'll, they'll keep prying. Do I think they'll go after an Andy Dalton? Of course not. Andy Dalton's making way too much money. That's not who they are. See, those are the three quarterbacks that are out there that you wonder if the price drops enough on the free agents like Winston or Cam, would the Patriots at that point step in? And what is that number that makes it worth it for that quarterback to say, okay, I might make a couple of million more in another city, but I'd rather go be the quarterback in New England. And that's where it gets interesting later on. And then if that does happen again, how does that guy fit in with Jared Stidham, who you apparently liked quite a bit and you think is better than people realize. Right. But I think, you know, you owe it to the franchise to make sure, no matter what I think about Jared Stidham, your job as an executive and your job is to the team, you owe it to the franchise to create the most depth you can possibly create to make sure that you, if you're wrong, you're still going to be okay. You can't just put all your eggs in one basket. You've got to have a back door. And if you don't have a back door, you're going to get caught with your pants down and you're going to, and it's going to affect you. So I, I really think to me, it's more of a franchise organizational decision. What we see happen all the time, there are people tend, again, once again, it's bias. Uh, I think this guy's a really good player. I put all my chips in that basket. Well, you better be right. You better be right when you do that. If you're not, you know, it could really blow up on you. And I think it could become a problem. So I, I think that, the, the whole thing in New England is always about competition, right? So no matter who they bring in, no one's going to be given a job. They're going to have to earn it. And how is Tom going to fare in Tampa in your mind? I think this is going to be a fascinating situation. You know, that I mean, the one thing that struck me that Bruce Arian said that I did not agree with is Bruce said, just watch the tape. Tom's a great deep ball thrower. I, I think, and, and they said when Brandon Cooks was there, I think Tom can throw the deep ball. I think Tom's better at throwing the intermediate passing game. And I think that Tom's really good at running the offense the way he ran it in New England with, a, with throws to like the inside part of the field. 
Tom's best when he has three players that can control the inside part of the field. And when he was dynamic, it's with Gronk, Edelman, James White, those three. It could be Gronk, Aaron Hernandez, you know, Kevin Falk, or whomever the other back was. But you've got to be able to control the inside part of the field because that's where Tom makes his living throwing the football. So does Tampa have that? They've got Chris Godwin, Mike Evans. I don't know whether he's an inside-of-the-field kind of guy, if you put him in that category, or he's more of a – downfield threat. O.J. Howard, do we consider him in that category? Do they have the weapons that match up to what you're saying Tom needs to be most effective? I think they do. Add Cameron Braden to the conversation. They have two tight ends that can get inside. They also can bring Evans, and he can control the middle part of the field because he's dynamic and he's tough with the ball in his hands. And then they just need to add a running back that's really, really good in the pass. Yeah. That can pass protect, that can pass protect first. And Arians was quoted as saying, we're going to look for that because that's ultimately what they're going to need. They need that because Tom, like if Tom was playing with Saquon Barkley, Barkley wouldn't be on the field because Barkley doesn't pass protect very well. So Tom would say to him, no, 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 get, get him off the field. No, I, no, no. Put another IV protection out of this guy. That's what they got to find. Yeah, and, and I would expect that they are going to draft somebody here. There's got to be one pass catching back who does pass protect who's going to fit right into what they do. And I don't know if he'll be able to be effective as a rookie because rookie running backs, who pass protect, that's not an easy combination to find. But there has to be somebody there that they're going to identify here that they're going to go after in the draft, I would think. Don't you, don't, is there somebody you know there that fits that category to, off the top yeah, of your head? No, I definitely think. I, I mean, I thought they would have signed Deion Lewis. The Giants beat him to him. But, uh, I mean, I think they'll sign someone like that. It doesn't have to be a down and all the down guy. I mean, Ronald Jones can still do his thing. You know, but they're going to have to add a back to that team. And they're also going to have to, to me, what worries me most about their football team is are they going to be good enough at right tackle? Now, they signed Joe Haig. DeMar Dotson's a free agent. You know, are they good enough in that offensive line for Tom? Tom's going to get rid of the ball quickly in the New England system. When you analyze, when you analyze Bruce's system, if you just look at the, at Bruce's system, it, it's a lot of three run homers. I mean, I think Bruce, the fans probably won't remember this name, but there was a baseball manager for the Baltimore Orioles named Earl Weaver who hated the sacrifice bunt. Well, Bruce Arians is the equivalent of, of, uh, of Earl Weaver. He doesn't want to sacrifice bunt ever. He don't want three-yard passes. So right. when you look at the history of his quarterbacks, whether it's Ben, whether it's Peyton, whether it's Carson, their interceptions percentages are always fairly high because he's throwing the ball down the field. And that ain't Tom's game. Tom don't want to turn that ball over. How far do you think Tampa can go? Well, I think it, we're going to find out if last year's defense was a mirage or whether they're really that good. Can Shaq Barrett come back and play to the same level? Are they good enough up front, you know, in the defensive front to, to continue that way? I mean, I thought Todd Bowles did a remarkable job. I think Todd Bowles is a really good football coach. I agree. I he, was in, in a, he was in a really hard situation in, in New York, uh, you know, he probably needed more help than they were, the front office could have given him. But I think he demands from the players. He's commanding to the players. And I think his mind is good. He operates under the Parcells theory of make them play left-handed. So I, I think the defense – but, look, I think New Orleans did a good job so far this preseason, this, this offseason. I, I think, you know, who knows where Carolina's going to be yet. And then Atlanta's always the missing link for me because Atlanta's a team that – I never fall in love with their offensive line. I worry about their defense, even though Raheem Morris did a really good job last year taking over for Dan Quinn. I worry, do they have enough coverage people? Because you're not going to be able to play zone against the against the Saints 
and against the Bucks and win like the 49ers try to do in the Super Bowl. That eventually you're going to have to play man-to-man. And you got to hold up. Michael, before I let you go, you mentioned Jerry Rice, 1984, Mississippi Valley State. You getting the tape on him for Bill Walsh. What do you remember about taking Jerry Rice in 1984? What stands out to you now about it? What stands out is we really wanted Eddie Brown. <laughs> we, I could still – one of my fondest memories is I, I, we, we, we had this small office space in, in 7-Eleven of Adam Street, and I was standing next to Coach Walsh, and he was on the phone with – with Paul Brown, who was alive at the time. And we were trying to trade up to get, because Bill would have been happy with Altoon, Eddie Brown, or Jerry Rice. He would have been happy with any one of the three. And we tried to trade up with Cincinnati to get that pick. And Mike said, and Paul Brown said to Coach Walsh, he said, no, I'm going to pick Eddie Brown here. And then he picked him. And we picked Jerry Rice and we're just as content. And it was an invaluable lesson to me because what it told me and taught me then, don't fall in love with players. Don't fall in love with one player. The draft's never about, we got to get this guy. There's always two or three guys that are just as good. You just got to keep looking. If you, when I did a project for Coach Walsh, I had to call every high school coach down in Miami. Eddie Brown played, I think, at the university, played at Miami High. And when I called these coaches that played against him in high school, he was an option quarterback in high school. They, they talked about him in reverence. I mean, in complete reverence. That was the greatest high school player they'd ever seen. It was like Allen Iverson back in the day. And then he went to Tyler Junior College, and remarkably, he got 64 units in one year, and he transferred to the University of Miami for three years. I remember watching that Eddie Brown in college, Michael, the Miami wide receiver, and he was unbelievable because I was a draft nick back wow. then, and I wanted the New York Jets to take him, and they wound up getting Al Toon, right? So, and, and you just wonder, what would have happened if I'm making this up, Jerry Rice wound up going to Cincinnati and Eddie Brown or Altoon wound up coming to play for you and Bill Walsh in San Francisco. Would they have been the star you know, that Jerry Rice was? I, I think I think all three of them were would have been great and they proved to have great careers. I think Boomer's fastball, I think it killed Eddie's hands. He had so many cuts in between his fingers that it damaged his hand. But he was electrifying with the ball in his hand. And he may not have had it. I mean, Jerry's work ethic, his commitment to his body allowed him to play over such a long period of time that, you know, I think it was the perfect match. Again, that truly is what the draft is about, matching the, per- matching the player's skills to the system perfectly. Well, Michael, I appreciate you giving us some time today, some insight into how this draft process will unfold. I always enjoy speaking with you. Uh, good luck with the athletic, the work that you do, the podcast, the GM Shuffle, uh, and your Saturday morning sports betting program on Sirius XM. I really appreciate taking the time today, Michael. Thanks for having me, Adam. There's the former NFL general manager and the co-host of the GM Shuffle podcast, Michael Lombardi. And now the Cardinals Pro Bowl defensive end, Chandler Jones. Joining us now, the man who, since he entered the NFL in 2012, has more sacks than anybody in the league. More than Von Miller, more than J.J. Watt, more than any pass rusher you can think of. Chandler Jones. Chandler, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate it. And we are not bringing you on here today to talk about all those sacks or anything that you've done on the field. More important, something you did was even more impressive in my mind. But last week, you donated 150,000 meals to food banks in Arizona and your hometown of Endicott, New York. 
What inspired you to make an offer of such generosity, Chandler? Uh, well, I was just thinking about what I could do from home. Um, you know, you know, I've been taking this whole uh, quarantine thing very serious. So I thought, you know, I got with my, my, my team and my financial advisor and I said, how can we help? And uh, he reached out to a few food banks and uh, we donated meals across uh, New York and Phoenix. How'd that make you feel doing that? It felt, it made me feel good. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, spoke to a lot of my friends and they said, you know, it's even helped some of their family members. So um, think that I could do that and reach out and uh, help from home. I was, I was glad to do it. And um, like I said, I'm, I'm doing all I can to, to, to stop the spread for sure. What do you know about how the meals are being distributed, Chandler? Well, you know, my, uh, as a kid growing up, my mother, she actually used to work uh, Meals on Wheels. Um, she used to go to this place called Chow. And she used to get food and she cooked the food and she would, uh, you know, serve it to, you know, the senior citizens or the people at need. Wow. And, uh, what I did was I donated money to those food banks and, uh, and I know that they, that it would give them more supplies and more, uh, food to, to distribute throughout, uh, those states. How much did your mom's work with the Meals on Wheels program inspire you and leave a mark on you through the years? How much do you remember that now even? Yeah, you know, growing up as a kid, I mean, that was all I knew. You know, it, was, it wasn't it was an option. I mean, it was fun. It was, you know, my mom was very huge in the community. And, um, you know, it was something that it was it was normal for us to do. And, you know, now that I have the opportunity uh, to do it, and that, and that it will be such a, such a help, uh, especially with the time right now, uh, it was something that I definitely wanted to do. You talk about taking the quarantine seriously. How are you taking it seriously, Chandler? Of course. You know, I, I, I my time at home has been, uh, I spend most of my time at home. Uh, but the biggest thing is when I do decide to go outside, if I go, if I, if I have to go to a public place like the grocery store, I might send a family member there. Or if I do go, I will have my mask and gloves on. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to preach that to my friends. And a lot of my friends are like, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just like, protect yourself. So just protecting myself for the most part. Well, you're staying inside and you are wearing a mask to a grocery store. So I, 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 I'm wearing gloves, but I'm not wearing a mask. And I've debated whether or not I should be wearing a mask. Why do you feel like yeah, the mask is important? Of course. I, I feel like from what I've read, uh, the coronavirus, it can get through, you know, you can get through your mouth and touching your face and even your eyes. You know, I, I throw some shades on. I throw some shades on because uh, water droplets can get through your eye sockets. I'm not sure if that's True, but I read it, so I'm going to believe it. <laughs> so you're reading up on this, and you're doing everything you can to stay safe. How bad is it in the Phoenix, Arizona area right now from what you can tell? Uh, it's definitely not the worst um, in the U.S. It's not the worst, but there's definitely cases. Uh, there's a few deaths. So um, or even if that it's out, you know, the, the, the news and, and just hearing these things, it's just it's something that I feel like everyone should take more serious if they're not. And um, not to be paranoid, but just to take it serious. I'm in one of those areas that's one of the worst. I will say that, Chandler. Like last night, we were watching 60 Minutes, and they had on a piece with the hospital workers. And as I said to Dr. Tom Mayer, who I had on earlier in this podcast, I was blown away. They're sitting there talking to these hospital workers. And these are the hospitals that I've been treated at, that I've gone to for various ailments. My wife gave birth in one of those hospitals to our daughter. And the doctors, they're interviewing them there. And I can't tell you how remarkable these guys are. I have great respect for what you guys do for your on Sundays and what you put your bodies through and everything you do, the courage and bravery you show. I don't mean this in a derogatory way. What these people are doing is at another level. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's Absolutely. just, it's, it's going on here crazy. And, and you just wonder how in tune some places are because, as you mentioned, it's not as prevalent in Arizona as it is in the New York metropolitan area right now. But you've got people, you're from Endicott, New York. You right. have family and friends back here, I would assume. What have they told you about what it's like for them? Uh, well, they're more, more working toward more of a lockdown type of deal. 
um, where there's people actually uh, making sure that people are inside over in the areas. I think it's, I feel like it's more not forceful, but they're, they're demanding people to be inside opposed to, you know, we having the option. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to go toward this way. If it spreads or not, I'm not sure, but over there in New York, that's what I'm hearing. There's more of a, a demand of a, to be inside opposed to it being suggested. I'm asking a question. If there were no football this year, no football this season, what would you end up doing with your time? Well, it depends. Is the coronavirus still around or no? Well, yeah, I think, again, hopefully we can come up with ways to test for it and develop a vaccine for it. But if football doesn't happen this season, it would clearly be related to the coronavirus and the effect it's having. Yeah, correct. So I think I would be doing something uh, pretty much at home. Um, I, I thought about creating a booth, so I'll start to make some music, honestly. Um, I have some of the equipment already, so I'll just do a lot of things at home and figure that out. What kind of music will you be mixing? Uh, I'm more of an R&B guy. I'm huge in R&B. I can sing a little bit. I got a few vocals. A lot, a lot of people know that about me, oh. but uh, I'll be I'll be singing a few tunes. Is that something that you would develop post football career, Chandler? Uh, no, no, not at all. That's only if I had to stay at home. I, I would be <laughs> right. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of football, your team made a major acquisition in free agency, traded for DeAndre Hopkins. What yeah. is his arrival, his presence going to do for your offense and your team? DeAndre Hopkins. I know DeAndre Hopkins since, uh, you know, his rookie year. Uh, and he's a tremendous player, if not the best, uh, well, one of the best players in the NFL. And not just talking offensive. Um, him coming to our team, uh, he brings that swagger, that confidence. Uh, that our team needs for sure. And, uh, and he would, he's gonna, he's gonna take the top off. I feel like he's the player that can take the top off of any defense. Um, having him on our team, it makes our team, uh, in our offense very dangerous for sure. What was your reaction when you heard that your team had traded for him? You know, to be completely honest with you, um, I, it was your tweet, I think. You tweeted something about him being traded. And, uh, it had said that he was traded to the Cardinals, but it didn't show the details. So, you know, as soon as I saw it, I retweeted it, and uh, and I said, that's the best news of all 2020. It was huge. And then I read the details, and I saw that one of my friends, David, was, was traded. You know, it's unfortunate, but it is the business. Um, but the, the fact that he is on our team, is, is, is it's huge. And I'm, I'm excited for him. I'm excited for our team. And uh, hopefully we're going to have a few more uh, draft picks that's going to boost this thing up a little bit. Well, Chandler, I appreciate the retweet. Thank you very much for that. If, right, if, I, right. if I had had, I wish I had more details at the time. Like that stuff was coming in by the moment. So like, I remember the sequence. It was like, oh, David Johnson traded. Okay, well let's right. get that. Oh, DeAndre Hopkins right. is a part of the deal. And then you're trying right, to get all right. the details, and and that came like three, four, five minutes later, or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm was, always looking for your tweets anyway, so you're on it. You're on point. Well, Chandler, I'm looking for your sacks as well, and I appreciate all the goodwill that you've done for Arizona, for the New York area. Keep bringing it this year. Keep piling on those sacks, and hopefully we'll get a chance to record if the Cardinals are in the postseason at some point in time here. Hey, we'll do. Thank you, Adam. There is the Cardinals Pro Bowl defensive end Chandler Jones, who's already had a successful offseason by any stretch, no matter how you quantify it. Special thanks to him. Thanks to Michael Lombardi, the co-host of the GM Shuffle podcast, and a friend of mine who offered tremendous insight today. And special thanks to the medical director of the NFL Players Association, Dr. Tom Marin. Special thanks to you, the listener, for tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast. We hope that we provided you a bit of information, a bit of a diversion during this trying time for everybody in our country as we try to fight off this virus. Please join us again next week as we'll be back with another episode of the Adam Schefter podcast. Until then, be well and stay safe.